Hello, and welcome to a special episode of GradCast, the official radio show for the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Tanya, and here with me is my co-host, Gavin. Hello, how are you doing? And today we have Connor joining us. He is a first-year master's student in pathology and also the newest member of GradCast. Welcome. Hello. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We're looking forward to getting to getting to know you in the next little bit. Yeah. So, Connor, let's just start out with you are in your first year of your master's. So really just in your first sort of three months of your program, right? Yeah. What are you up to? <laughs> well, I'm figuring out my project, and I think I've got most of it figured out about now. Um, yeah, kind of dipping my toes into the, the whole master's degree world is is really fun mm-hmm. and I'm I'm glad I wasn't wrong about <laughs> deciding to go into it. So we're we're you're good where you are. You're yeah. happy in the yeah, program. Absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. All right. So um tell us a little bit about your project or where you're kind of at in terms of planning your project. Yeah. So my project is studying HIV. I'm in the pathology program, so everything there is related to uh, disease and and disease research. Uh, in particular, I'm not studying in a, in a in a wet lab, so to speak. It's it's just all computers. Um, most of my work is done through through coding, and I'm really just looking at how does HIV move through a population, and and can we predict outbreaks using um, data that we already have on HIV. So you're essentially creating computer models to understand how HIV will, like get into a host spreads and at one point it becomes very severe and can you also predict like how it's going to spread or where in particular yeah so so transmission between hosts uh basically is is kind of what you what you look at and it ends up forming like this network of uh different cases of hiv and um by looking at that network by looking at specific parts of it and and how large they are how quickly they're growing you can kind of bring public health's attention to a particular area and say, okay, right here, this these are people who need attention. This is mm. this is an area that's mm. at risk of becoming an outbreak in the future. So so we have to look at that. So I'm actually interested in something you said a little bit earlier. You're in the medical sciences program, but you work with computers? Yeah. How does that work? Yeah. So uh, DNA these days is is really hard to work with and nobody likes working with actual DNA anymore. So for the most part we basically type that out into a computer. We have uh, programs and systems to sequence DNA, and all of that info, all of the DNA, now is kind of stored in bits and bytes in a computer, and that's what I work on. So I'm not working with physical DNA, but I'm working with this snapshot of particular parts of DNA, all in a computer, don't have to get my hands dirty. <laughs> I just write code <laughs> to do it. It's, it's good. So you're the guy that can look at everything a lot a lot faster than someone in the lab that probably has to go through numerous procedures just to probably look at perhaps one strand of DNA. Yeah, I'm really thankful that because all of the lab-based uh, sequencing and, and figuring out, okay, what does this genetic sequence look like? What is the DNA in this thing? Um, all that's been done before it gets to me. I'm kind of post-production on that mm-hmm. whole that whole thing. So basically somewhere someone is doing all of that DNA testing, collecting. The sequencing, yeah. Yeah, they're doing the sequencing, and that is what you are now getting on a computer. So yeah. you take a look at that sequence to then develop codes, or what is it that you do with the sequence? Yeah, so uh, HIV has its own genetic info, its own equivalent of DNA. 
I'm looking at a specific sequence of HIV info within a host. So instead of just looking at the host and all the factors about them, I'm looking at their HIV mm. and how it's related to other cases of HIV that might be close by. So there's kind of this whole HIV family tree that, that ends up representing um, how HIV has been transmitted mm-hmm. in, in a population. And all of that information is basically stored and accessible through these genetic sequences that I can just kind of look at and align and move around um, and compare. Most mm-hmm. of it's about comparison, how related are two specific strains of HIV. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so would somebody um, be able to use your information to then predict um, outbreak or prevalence of HIV? Yeah. So if we have, say, 100 cases of HIV and all those are looking very, very similar genetically, like they're all very closely related, um, we can start to think, okay, all of these cases of HIV probably happened really, really quickly. They were all transmitted very, very recently and kind of all at once. Mm. So what that ends up looking like is that that's basically the definition of an outbreak right. is a bunch of HIV transmission events that happen really, really close to each other. So if I have 100 sequences and I'm looking, all these sequences look pretty related. That says to me, this looks like an outbreak sort of situation. Right. Are you able to tell how the outbreak started, like how the HIV was transmitted to from host to host, or is it still more of an up in the air kind of a deal at the moment? So that's where this actually gets really, really tricky in terms of um, the future, because right now it's not necessarily that accurate, but we also have to treat this data really seriously because there might be a point when we would be able to look at just the genetic data we have and say this person gave this other person HIV, which is a very, very serious piece of information to have, especially when we're talking about this population who's really marginalized and and, and really stigmatized. So because the sentence for that is, is so heavy, um, that's the kind of information we have to be really, really careful with. And 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 looking for that, I think, is the wrong way to use the same technology. I think it's, it's a matter of looking at um, how can we see a situation and say this is a specific situation that needs help that we're not necessarily helping, not a matter of which individual gave HIV to another individual because that ends up being a much trickier case. Like mm-hmm. that ends up working in the legal world and yeah, so. But they are related. Okay. When you say that, D, um, sorry, HIV has different genetic makeup or sequencing, does that mean then potentially knowing, you know, there's an outbreak that looks a certain way, we could determine specific treatment options or um, ways to manage the HIV? Um, so, yeah, that's actually another interesting factor is, um, and something that I have to learn a lot of as I do this degree is, how it's easy to look at all the data and look at all the numbers and look at all my code. But ultimately, um, a lot of what I have to do is find a way to say, how can I give this to clinics and Mm -hmm. public health organizations and clinicians and say, here's how to actually use this information. And that, I think, is something that I'm in the process of figuring out. (laughs) I would would say it's, it's, 
it's always uh, it's always something you have to keep in mind, but it's also always a challenge to to say how do we use this information effectively. Right. Should we come back to you in a year and see what yeah. you think? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Because <laughs> my next question was going to be more so from a thesis perspective. So your master's would be two years. Right. What What is kind of the end goal? Like, what does your thesis potentially potentially answer or contribute to? So, the the question. Uh, that I that I'm ultimately asking with this work is saying, is this whole outbreak prediction thing something we can do? Can do, okay. or is it just something we think we can do? Hmm. So a lot of the modeling I end up working with is 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 saying, all right, here's what we think would be predictive. Um, here are these certain features, like this is a big cluster of closely related HIV sequences, and we think they represent an outbreak, and we think they're going to be growing very very fast. Um, Maybe that's all bogus. We we don't know. We're we're, we're not sure, um, and that's something that I'm specifically testing, and I'm testing a lot of different methods and and uh, other people's code to see which works best. What are the flaws inherent with one? Um, but ultimately, the goal is to say, how good are we at doing this? How good are we at using clusters of genetic info to? to make predictions about what will and won't be an outbreak. And so how do you test that? Like, how do you yeah. how do you know if you achieved it or not? Yeah, I was just about to ask that as well. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So I, I do work on some real data. And essentially, I, I go through that data year by year. And I say, based on the sequences in this year, what does this year think will happen next year? Hmm. And then because I have access to the info from the next year, oh, the I can say, year. was it right? Like, was it correct about that? Mm -hmm. And so I'll, I'll, be, I'll be jumping from year to year and testing on the next year. Mm -hmm. And just saying, based on the information we currently have in my kind of partitioned um, model, right. I, can, I can say, okay, well, I, I make the data guess about what's going to happen. And then I say, how good were you at guessing? How many years would you do? Like, how many years forward, I guess? Um, so the idea that a person gets diagnosed with HIV and then we take their genetic sequence data from HIV, mm -hmm. that's, been, that's been done pretty regularly, especially in the Western world, for about 20 years, I'd say, maybe a bit less than that. So for the most part, typically studies like this working on HIV DNA they're within the kind of 2005 to 2017 range. Mm -hmm. okay. um, and it all it's always retrospective right now. Right. So we're right. always looking back at all this data. And are you able to like expand the model to look at not probably just Canada, but like numerous uh, countries and see if there's any maybe a similarities or sudden differences based on where they're geographically located? Yeah, that's that's actually a really interesting point is we might try and think of uh, a particular group that's at risk here in Canada. But, you know, for instance, um, young people are a particular group we, we, we pay attention to for the spread of HIV in, in, in Canada and the West. But that might not necessarily be a risk factor everywhere. Every country is different in regards to uh, what is and isn't a risk. So you can't really make the assumption generally. Um, and it's actually something I'm really lucky to have multiple sets of data from multiple different countries that I can I can look at. And I, I'm really interested to see uh, how they're different, the ways in which 
we have to kind of view this epidemic differently depending on where we are. Is it possible that, you know, you let's say you're starting in like um, 2008 and you predicted something for 2009 and you got it right mm-hmm. and then you get to 2010 and now it's wrong? Yeah. Can that happen? Yeah. So what does that mean? Uh, well, that's kind of the importance of uh, having a lot of years and right. a lot of <laughs> a lot of attempts because it's never going to be perfect, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's just about random chance. There is a lot of chaos in, within this. That's, I think, always a fundamental thing with, with stats is that we like our models to be really clean and perfect and, and pretty, but at the end of the day, the world's a bit more chaotic than that. Right. So. so you could end up, you know, at the end of these two years saying that this this model doesn't work or it does work or it kind of works. Yeah. Yeah. So you would be concluding essentially, I guess, the degree to which this model works. Yeah. And and there's a lot of different methods we try and use on this, too. So mm. loads of people have come up with really clever um techniques to make predictions and they've they've come up with really good ways to organize all this sequence information and test how related everything is um and i'm looking at okay which one of these is is the best which is which is the best way to go about this Mm. um because right now we're all kind of using the same method the standard is very much um you know one way Mm -hmm. and i think giving a lot of different methods a chance and looking at how they compare to that one way is uh, is a good idea and always something we should do. Yeah. All right. Uh, you seem to already, after three months of starting, know quite a lot about um, the what HIV is, how it spreads, and using computer coding to try and track it and understand how it develops and, I'm going to guess, say evolved? Would that be a correct way? Yeah, absolutely. It? It, it okay. Like Did you know you always wanted to look at HIV and apply computer programming to it? Uh, no, I've changed my mind about what I was very excited to get the chance to study it, but I never thought I would. My, my undergraduate work was on yeast and how yeast evolves. And apparently those skills translate to being able to study HIV, which (laughs) I'm really excited about. Yeah. Uh, but I started my degree here at Western as well as an undergraduate, uh, aiming to go into neuroscience and then. I changed my mind and thought biochemistry, I want to be a lab guy in biochem. And then I changed my mind again. And then I started learning about computers. And I I really loved coding. I really loved kind of that creative problem solving purity that that has. And then, yeah, just it's always new opportunities to find different topics. It's Mm -hmm. yeah. So. And so based on the fact that you kind of have your data, how does someone go about organizing their time over these two years because you have the data and you're kind of doing your thing so testing one year to the next year what does a day in the lab look like for you it's it's a really interesting workflow if you 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 talk to anyone who's done like really big code-based projects Mm -hmm. about five percent of my time i think is actually writing the code Mm mm-hmm and then the other 95% of my time day to day is figuring out why doesn't my code work? That's kind of just, <laughs> that's, and that's the nature of how this always seems to go is I'll have an assumption and I'll, I'll, I'll write it out, but it is so reliably not going to work the first time. Hmm. I have, there has been one case in my entire experience working with computers when I got something right the first time and every other case has just been, you know, one day writing, 10 days fixing 
you know, mm. why is this broken? Why doesn't this work? So I'm guessing you must spend a lot of time just in front of the computer screen, just going like, why is this not working? Yeah, lots <laughs> of lots of heads and hands, lots of <laughs> lots yeah. of people almost tearing their hair out. It's it's really frustrating, but so satisfying. Mm. Um, and it's nice because it, it it is ultimately a very fast way to to do research. Is if all you need to do is write code and run it, um, it's 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 really you're, you're you're free in terms of time you don't have to wait for your cell cultures to grow and get them at a really specific time well, someone you, else did that part yeah exactly <laughs> and i'm so thankful they did but yeah yeah so tell us a little bit about what your lab looks like then you're in the medical sciences building but you're with computers yeah i'm in the little the little addition to the medical sciences building called health sciences edition mm-hmm. which i think a lot of people don't know is there sometimes but yeah, it's a it's a great little lab. There's kind of the the two. There's the big there's the big lab room where three people work, and I work up in the smaller office that's kind of connected to and associated with that big lab room. Mm-hmm. Um, I I love everyone I work with. Nice. It's a really it's a really nice environment. But everything is just computers, like all just very high tech computers, no real lab equipment, um, just big computer towers, mm-hmm. a, a mini fridge, and a coffee maker. That's, That's really interesting because a lot of people, when they think lab, we think like pipetting and white lab coats. Yeah. <laughs> I always think the <laughs> chemistry labs where I see first years work in the uh, biology and geological science building, mm-hmm. next, which connects to chemistry. So I always see them working away. They're either titrating, filtering some chemical and I'm thinking like see now uh, that's a lab yeah yeah <laughs> that's a, you expect yeah. whiteboards with big equations written upon them <laughs> we do have those actually yeah. we definitely have so for an undergrad then who who's maybe in a similar position like yourself maybe doing something related to it, within the field of medical sciences or in, in the computer science world um, can they go into a field like yours or do they need some kind of background knowledge in order to do that um the first time I started even thinking about coding was about five years ago, and now I'm doing a master's degree, mm-hmm. very, very much associated with it. Was, um, it, was it all self-taught, <laughs> your coding? I did take courses here at Western. For the most part, that is a very good way to learn coding. I, I know a lot of people who have um, been able to get really far just by working on it, because it is actually fun to do. It's It's a really creative endeavor, and you can end up spending hours just working on your code and trying to make something. So I find it is one of those things where a lot of people have a, a, an easy time learning it just because they want to keep learning more. They want to figure out how to finish their little projects. So you would say at least background knowledge in coding is important. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, a lot of my degree was in biology. I do have to know a bit about genetics, but I did turn on a dime a lot throughout my undergrad <laughs> in terms of what I wanted to study. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's never it's never really too late, I guess, is, is a good point to make. So yeah. it's never too late to start looking at something different. So how did you find the transition from undergrad to um, a master's degree? Because the work, like the feel of the workloads are um, very different. Yeah, I, I, th- I think it's a strange case because my program is very much based upon a project. I do have little classes and meetings and journal clubs I have to go to, but I think so much more is left up to you as a as a student as how to organize your own time. Right. And especially when a lot of the work I can do, I can do from anywhere. All I need is my laptop. So it does put me in this situation where I do have a lot that I need to get done. 
but I also have a lot of freedom as to how I want to <laughs> handle that. Uh, and that is a double-edged sword sometimes. Yeah, sometimes, definitely. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, you hear that often with um, individuals coming into the master's where all of a sudden it feels like you have so much time because your usual schedule that you're used to looking at on OWL or even in high school is these boxes with all the classes that you need to be mm-hmm. at and all of a sudden it's all you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's when I really learned that time management is a very important skill oh, yeah. I think to have in grad school because you as you said, all that free time, first you think, oh, so much time, I can get a lot of things done. But then you never had to plan things yourselves most of the time. You just, yeah. you just had your schedule, you followed your schedule, and you planned when you'd get homework done. Yeah. And then when there's nothing there, you think, well, how do I best schedule my time? Mm-hmm. And not procrastinate. That's a very dangerous thing. Yeah. <laughs> this is why I've never gone on Reddit. Oh, <laughs> never. Reddit's Don't a, do it. it's a I've been hole. warned by PhDs, postdocs, and family saying, like, you, it's tempting at first, but then you're going to get sucked into a hole that you're never going to be able to get out. Yeah. <laughs> so, never gone on Reddit. So, not related to the research, but why did you choose to join Gradcast? Oh, uh, I love the idea of um, talking about science and research and the research world. I feel like sometimes it can seem sort of insular. A lot of the idea of uh, academics kind of only speaking to other academics. Um, And I really like things where you get the opportunity to talk about this research world that I think usually seems really mysterious Mm -hmm. uh, in a way that anyone really has access to. Um, So you don't have to think of science as this thing that some someone with a PhD far off is doing that will eventually come to you in the form of like a cell phone right um, you can think of it as something that's accessible like you can you can track the world of, of science and I think that um, things like gradcast are the the cure for a kind of insulation of science well you heard it right here gradcast is an awesome yeah. place to be <laughs> I just plugged gradcast yeah. on gradcast there you go well wonderful gradcastception right there yeah. <laughs> as we're sort of starting to wrap up tell us a little bit about what's next for you in terms of your research or just grad school in general that you're looking forward to right now uh, you know you know my my main goal is just to try and get this project done um long-term goals I've always thought are I would like to be involved in academia in some way in the future Mm -hmm. um especially if it helps me like communicate science and do outreach or at least just be a good teacher Mm -hmm. um those are kind of those are kind of always the life goals going into further study and a master's and a PhD Mm -hmm. um because yeah I just kind of really enjoy talking about science and uh yeah i want an opportunity to do that i can suddenly picture it now a whole new podcast connor sitting at the top right there trying to share (laughs) another way like somewhere else sharing the to the world the beauties of science and all its various topics (laughs) that would be that would be a pretty uh pretty nice thing and if anybody wanted to learn more about your research now or about your lab, what would be the best way for them to reach out to you? Um, well, so I have a, uh, I have a, a, a GitHub page. Cool. It's Connor Chato at GitHub. GitHub is kind of like Facebook for coders. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was about to ask. <laughs> I was like, ask like, I don't yeah, know <laughs> yeah, it's essentially so. And, and uh, Poon Lab, my supervisor's name is, is Art Poon. And so our lab also has its own GitHub pages of all the cool things our lab is doing. And if you're 
you're into coding or uh, or or not, a lot of it's pretty accessible. Um, you can check out that page and even see a lot of the code we're working on. Some mm-hmm. of it's just open to, to look at. Awesome. And then do you also want to maybe share a way to directly contact you if they if they wanted to? Yeah, you can uh, find me at cchato, so that's C-C-H-A-T-O, at uh, uwo.ca. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing all of your amazing insights and wishing you the best of luck as you progress through your master's. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So uh, thank you, everyone, for listening to GradCast. You are listening to a special episode of GradCast. We are the official radio show for the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. Um, We are also on air every Tuesday on CHRW at 6 o'clock. But if you miss us on the radio, you can catch us anytime online on gradcast.ca and catch up on all of our amazing episodes. And if you want to join us, you heard all of the great plugs from Connor as to how (laughs) awesome GradCast is. It is. (laughs) So whether you'd like to join us as a guest on our show or maybe you're interested in joining our committee, send us an email at gradcastradio at gmail.com. I'm Tanya. And I'm Gavin. And we'll see you later. The GradCast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.